The golden ratio manifests in the whole of creation. Take the ratio of the length of a man and the height of his navel, the ratio of the sides of the great ratio between the long and short sides of a pentagram. Why is this? Because the ratio of the whole to the greater is the ratio of the greater to the lesser. That was Pythagoras, clearly an admirer of the golden ratio. Having him in your fan club certainly boosts a number's ego. But in general, the golden ratio is a forgotten number. Millions of people adore the simplicity of zero. Many others are enchanted by the paradoxes of infinity. And everybody loves pi. But who cares about the golden ratio? Well, I'm going to prove to you that this much-neglected number is central to everything from sunflowers to snail shells, from parking meters to the Parthenon. But first, where does this number come from? Well, imagine I've got a line and I divide it into two parts, such that the ratio of the short bit to the long bit is identical to the ratio of the long bit to the entire length. That only works with a ratio of 1.618 to 1. That's the golden ratio, 1.618. And, as Ian Stewart, author of Nature's Numbers, points out, the Greeks loved it. They saw it, I think, as one of the fundamentals of geometry. The Greeks were very hot on this Platonist concept of the ideal world with the perfect circle, the perfect line, and the golden number as a sort of perfect ratio. They thought of it as two lengths, one about 1.6 times the other. So just in the same way as pi is the ratio between uh, a circumference and a diameter? That's right. The Greeks went to great lengths not to talk about numbers in the way we would, but to talk about ratios of two lengths. And that got them around the problem that some numbers are not perfect fractions. They're irrational numbers. And indeed, the golden number is irrational. It is not an exact fraction. It's 1.618034 and a bit. It goes on and on and on. The golden ratio is also called the golden mean or the divine ratio. But whatever it's called, you can build a rectangle out of it, which has one side that is 1.618 times longer than the other side. Robin Wilson is a maths historian at the Open University. The Greeks are fascinated with geometry anyway, and the golden ratio crops up throughout geometry. If you have a bit of paper where it's the sides are in the ratio, the golden ratio, 1.618 to 1, the ancient Greeks regarded that as the most perfect type of rectangle. It wasn't too long and thin, it wasn't too squarish. Aesthetically, it was a very attractive rectangle. Television screens are not so far removed from golden ratio. Postcards, photographs. It seems to me the real point here is that if it's going to be a rectangle, then it shouldn't be too square, because then it looks like a failed square, and it shouldn't <laughs> be too long and thin, because then it doesn't really look like a rectangle. And in between is, is about one and two thirds, and, and this is very close to the golden number. So the golden number creates the golden rectangle, or perhaps that should be the Goldilocks rectangle. Not too thin, not too fat, just right. And for thousands of years, artists have exploited this proportion. Around the Renaissance, the Renaissance painters and artists and sculptors went back to all this beautiful Greek inspiration of the Golden Age, and they used the Golden Mean a lot of the time in defining the ratio of paintings, the perspective of objects inside paintings, the position in a painting, which is the perspective point normally of exactly where Jesus will be holding the candle or exactly where the woman's left eye will be looking or something like that, is often defined by the geometry and ratio of the Golden Mean. So it comes through a lot of ancient and then Renaissance art and architecture. 
That was Adam Spencer, an Australian rock DJ with a penchant for pure mathematics. Leonardo da Vinci seems to have thought that 1.618 defined perfect proportions within the human body. And Piet Mondrian's rectangular art repeatedly incorporated the golden ratio. And the Parthenon has golden rectangles within it. But Ian Stewart warns against being overzealous when searching for the golden ratio. If you've got a building, you can find thousands and thousands of measurements, and if you start comparing them, you will find any number you want. Yeah, I mean, the, the, hum the human brain has evolved for finding patterns, and if, if, if you know what patterns you're looking for, you'll see them more or less. That's the danger here. Certainly, some more modern architects and artists have deliberately used the golden mean. Le Corbusier is the best example, best known example. He had a scheme called the Modulor. He said it was the perfect proportions for designing human-sized buildings for humans to actually fit inside. He was unusual among architects, I think, in thinking of what happened inside the buildings as well as what they looked like from outside. Uh, so he had this scheme of lots and lots of different rectangles and it was all hanging around the golden mean. But it's not just art. The golden ratio also appears in nature. The ventricles in the heart reset themselves at the golden ratio point in the heart's rhythmic cycle and divide the pitch of a DNA spiral by its diameter and you get roughly the golden ratio. These could be coincidences, but there is at least one natural structure that definitely reflects the golden ratio. The precision is uncanny. If you create a rectangle, that's in the ratio of the golden mean, if you break inside that to a smaller rectangle that's in golden ratio and a smaller rectangle within that, within that, within that, you keep drawing a series of rectangles inside each other. They're all sort of spiralling round inside the big rectangle in that divided ratio, the golden ratio. You can create something called the spiral of Archimedes. So hang on, so I've generated a whole series of, of ever-decreasing rectangles. That are sort of vanishing into a point in the middle. Then take your pen and dot the bottom right-hand corner of each of those rectangles as you drew them. You can join those points up in a spiral. And this beautiful spiral occurs in snail shells, in crustaceans, in many places in the natural world. So nature and artists obviously adore the golden ratio. But why, I wondered, did mathematicians find it so interesting? It's a number which is about 1.618. But if you happen to square it, then what you get is 2.618. And if you happen to take its reciprocal, one over the number, you get 0 0.618. So it's a very strange number. As I say, if you square it, it's the same as adding one, and if you take one over it, it's the same as subtracting one. The reason it has these properties is that it's, it is actually a number which satisfies a certain quadratic equation. x squared equals x plus 1. So automatically, if x is this golden ratio number, this 1.618, then x squared is that plus 1. So from an arithmetical point of view, it's a very attractive number. 1.618 strikes me as a rather robust number. Square it or invert it, and the 0.618 stays intact. It has an inherent stability, further demonstrated to me by mathematician Ron Knott. Usually on a calculator, there's a 1 over x button. Divide it into 1 button, I'll take the reciprocal. So if you tap in any number, then add 1 to it, and then hit the 1 over x button, and then add 1 to that, and hit the 1 over x button, then add 1 to that, and hit the 1 over x button. Keep doing that. You'll find very soon it'll settle down to the golden section number 0.618 or 1.618. Hopefully by now you'll realise why Pythagoras was so obsessed with the golden ratio. But you haven't heard the half of it. Meet a 12th century Italian known as Fibonacci, 
who unwittingly discovered a hitherto hidden aspect of the golden ratio. Fibonacci was a guy called Leonardo of Pisa. He was a mathematician around 1100 AD. He did a lot of different mathematics, and one of the most famous things he discovered was the Fibonacci sequence or the Fibonacci numbers. He took the numbers 0 and 1, added them together to get 1. He took the last two numbers of that list, 1 and 1, added them to get 2. And he kept adding the last two numbers of the list to generate the next numbers. And these numbers, which were originally modelled on a hypothesis of a population of rabbits, that every generation two parents produce one offspring, and that models the number in the population after each iteration. It's an unrealistic model of population because people die off and all that, but it does show how quickly things can grow. This beautiful list of numbers, the Fibonacci numbers, crops up in so many areas of mathematics. So many different formulas, so many different lists of numbers relate back to the beautiful Fibonacci numbers. Let's just run through that again. Start with a list containing just 1 and 1 and add them. So now our list is 1, 1, 2. Add the last two numbers, 1 and 2 equals 3, and keep doing this, adding to the list. 2 add 3 equals 5, 3 add 5 equals 8, and you can keep doing this. Add the last two numbers on the list to get the next one. Any number on this list is a Fibonacci number. 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, 21, 34, 55, and so on. What's fantastic is that the numbers from this sequence turn up in the most unlikely places. Ron Not. Supposing you're in a car park and the machine takes £1 and £2 coins and you want a ticket, say, for £3. How many sequences of coins can you put in to make your £3? And you've only got £1s and £2 available. Well, you could put in three £1 coins, or you could put in a £2 coin and then a 1, or you could put the £1 coin in first and then the 2. So there are three ways to make a £3 ticket. Now, supposing I wanted to stay a bit longer and it was £4. Right. How many ways could you do it? OK, I can... T mm -hmm. Or a one 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 one. Right. So that, that's, that's two. two ways, yes. One one two. Yes. One two one. Yes. Two one one. That's it. So there were three ways for a three pound ticket and five ways for a four. And it turns out there'll be eight for five and thirteen for six. And right. And all of these are Fibonacci. And these numbers. are the Fibonacci numbers. Yes. Parking meters are quite prosaic, but Fibonacci numbers also appear in more marvelous places. If you look at a big sunflower, and most of them are fairly big, the seeds in the head just form this flat circle of seeds. But when you look closely, you find it's got lots and lots of spiral patterns in it. There's a family of spirals that goes clockwise, and there's another family of spirals, you can see, which interpenetrates with it and goes anticlockwise. And if you say, how many spirals are there? Very typically, you'll see 34 in one direction and 55 in the other. And on really big sunflowers, you may even see 89 in one direction and 144 in the other. And these are Fibonacci numbers. And when you get to numbers that big and it still works, this can't be coincidence. And it seems that nature is geared to trying to find the best form of packing things in, be it leaves on a branch or branches around a tree or seeds on a seed head or petals around a flower. And it wants to make sure that they're not overlapping each other so they each get the maximum amount of sunlight or of rain to channel down to the roots. And the best way of doing that in the way that the flowers grow with a little growing tip that turned round turns out to involve the Fibonacci numbers. My favourite example is pineapples. The diamonds on a pineapple surface form two interlocking spirals. Eight go in one direction, 13 in the other. Both Fibonacci numbers. It makes you wonder, is there a Fibonacci gene? 
The genes don't specify they have to be Fibonacci numbers. They are Fibonacci numbers because if you're going to make a plant, you have to use those numbers or it doesn't fit together properly. So the, the genetics don't pick the Fibonacci numbers. The genetics just say grow in some vague direction and then the external constraints that's, force those numbers upon the plant. That's right. If, if I was a biologist trying to defend the gene side of things, I'd say, well, look, the genetics can decide which Fibonacci numbers. <laughs> it might decide to use 55 and 89 in some sense but they won't be explicitly represented in the genetic code. What it does is it chooses a growth rate or a process or some sequence of genes that activate other genes, which when you follow through what happens, you discover out of it is coming this 89 and 55. We're almost done. But so far, I haven't said explicitly how Fibonacci numbers are linked to the golden ratio, which is where we started. Well, remember, the golden ratio is roughly 1.618. Now, take any two neighbouring Fibonacci numbers, divide the larger by the smaller, and you get roughly 1.618. 5 and 3 are Fibonacci numbers, and 5 divided by 3 is 1.66, which is close to the golden ratio. The next Fibonacci numbers are 8 and 5, and 8 divided by 5 is 1.6, which is even closer, and so on. You just heard Ian Stewart mention the Fibonacci numbers 89 and 55, and 89 divided by 55 is 1.6182, equal to the golden ratio, accurate to one part in 10,000. And if you could take infinitely huge Fibonacci numbers, then you get the golden ratio with perfect precision. Nature's number, 1.618, 0.3, 3.9, 8.8, 7.4. 9484842